The text for us today is Mark chapter 9, as we continue our, our study through Mark, verses 14 to 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. He asked, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw a crowd, that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This is the gospel of the Lord. Uh, so to understand this text, we have to put it back into its context because we have skipped a couple passages. Uh, we skipped the beginning of chapter 9 because we read it way back in March. It's the transfiguration account. So if you can follow the narrative of where we were last week with Jesus talking about his death and the cross that every one of us is going to carry, remember the last point of last week's sermon is that Christ was then going to show them his glory so that they would know that in these dark times, these painful times of living as a Christian this side of heaven, there is a glory that is coming for you. Now we already read that text and studied it, and so we skipped it. But where we're picking up the narrative is when those disciples and Jesus are coming back down the mountain of transfiguration. So Jesus is up there with Peter, James, and John, his inner circle of three, and there are nine disciples still back down at the bottom of the mountain. And so as we go through the text today, now that we know where it is in its context, I want to look at the four characters of this story, uh, the disciples, the father, the boy, and Jesus. And I want you to see how each character in this narrative teaches us something about what it means to be a Christian and what Jesus does for Christians. Okay, so first, we'll talk about the disciples. Um, as narrative goes, Jesus comes down the mountain, and at the bottom of the mountain, there is a boy who is possessed by an impure spirit. And it seems that the father of this boy had brought the boy to Jesus in order that Jesus would heal him, but because Jesus was gone, he asked the disciples to try to heal him. The unfortunate thing is that the disciples couldn't do it. I don't know what they tried, but apparently it was not working. And obviously you find out from the rest of the narrative, Jesus then does drive out the impure spirit. But at the end of the text, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, well, why couldn't we drive it out? 
And Jesus says this interesting thing. He says, this kind can only come out by prayer. Now, a couple things we need to understand about the text before we make an application. First, if you're following along in your NIV Bible, for example, um, either in paper or on the Bible app, you would notice that there is a little footnote right by that word prayer. And that footnote says that many manuscripts have prayer and fasting here. So to help you understand this, we have over 24,000 copies or fragments of the New Testament text from all the way back to about the first century. And so what we do when we try to figure out what the Bible says is we take those 24,000 copies or fragments, we put them all together and we see what is the most likely translation or what is the most likely text um, that is preserved for us. And the issue with this text is that there are a whole bunch of manuscripts, a whole bunch of those copies or fragments, in fact, the vast majority of them that have prayer and fasting here. But the best manuscripts that we have say just prayer. Now, I did a video on textual criticism on our YouTube channel. You can go watch that if you want to learn more about how text criticism works. But for this situation, it actually doesn't matter all that much. Because in the context of what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, prayer and fasting both work here. And even if Jesus didn't say fasting or did say fasting, it doesn't much matter. Uh, The way you can understand this is by seeing the structure of what Mark does with this text. So we've encountered a number of these Markin sandwiches uh, throughout the text of Mark, where we said there's there's a text or a story that starts, and then it, it pauses, and we go to a different story, and then we come back to the original story, and that story in the middle is supposed to inform the story on the outside, right? In this case, we have another Markin sandwich. We have the disciples are unable to drive out the demon, Then Jesus drives out the demon, and then they ask why they're unable to drive out the demon. And so what Mark is trying to show us is that the story of Jesus in the middle of the text informs what the disciples are struggling with on the outsides of the text. Okay, so what's the issue? Well, it seems that the disciples thought that they had the ability to drive out demons by something other than spiritual discipline. Whether you're talking about prayer or fasting, both of them fit into this category of spiritual discipline. And spiritual discipline is essentially denying myself and saying what I want, what I need, needs to be subservient to what God wants, what God is doing in my life. If you remember our biblical definition of prayer that we taught way back when I did the Echo series on the Lord's Prayer, we said prayer is not getting God to move in my direction. It's getting my heart to move in God's direction. It's speaking God's words to myself so that they become more true in my heart, drilling them down into me so that I believe them. And that's exactly what the Father in this text does. Maybe you remember uh, that, that he says to Jesus, I do believe Help my unbelief. Actually, both of those phrases have already appeared in the text. Jesus had said, you unbelieving generation, right? And we'll talk about what that means, but he had said that. You are an unbelieving generation. And then he has later said, everything is possible for one who believes. And so what this, this man is doing to Jesus is he says, you said everything's possible for one who believes. I do believe. But you also said that I am part of an unbelieving generation. So help my unbelief. In a sense, what this man is doing is he's taking Jesus' words and he is speaking them to himself. He is praying them in a sense. See, what Jesus says is that there are some things 
that are so evil in your life that if you think that by your own reason or strength or ingenuity or hard work ethic, you are going to get rid of those evil things, you are like those disciples trying to drive out that demon. If you think this depends on you, if you think you are strong enough, you are wrong. This kind only come out by prayer. And fasting is the same thing, isn't it? It's depriving yourself so that you realize that you need to be dependent. Right? You, you, by nature, cannot survive without outside influence of water and air and warmth and food and all these things. You need these things. They come from God. And so when you fast, you force yourself to realize, I can't do this on my own. I need God to do it for me. But how often do we struggle with this? Right? I think about this for myself. How many times when you come up against something that is painful or frustrating or disappointing, do you try to fix it before you pray about it? I'm preaching to myself here on this one. I am a fix-it person. And yet God says the first thing we ought to do is to take God's words and speak them to our own hearts. Pray them back to God to help us realize that no matter what is happening here, it is within God's plan. God's in control of all of it for our good and for the good of those around us. Now that's only going to come through spiritual discipline, right? It's only going to come from that hard work of denying yourself regularly so that when those times come, you are prepared for them. I don't know if many of you have been watching the Olympics. I haven't watched too much of the Olympics, but I know one thing. Every single athlete there had to discipline themselves. They had to deny themselves and say, nope, I can't smoke that, I can't drink that, I can't eat that, I can't stay up that late, I can't go out with you, I can't, I can't, I can't. And it allowed them, when the trial came, to perform at a high level. Now, God is less concerned with our performance and more concerned with us receiving from him because when we are weak, then we are strong, right? This isn't about us getting stronger. In fact, spiritual discipline is saying less me, more God. It's getting myself out of the way so that God can shine through me. And so what do the disciples learn here? They learn that if, if we think that the evil and painful and frustrating and disappointing things of our life are going to be fixed by our effort, we are barking up the wrong tree. And that every day, we should pray God's words back to him and trust that those words are true and drill them down into our hearts. I know I try to encourage this. We both do it in worship and I try to tell you to do it at home, but, but pray the Psalms. There are 150 absolutely perfect prayers that God said you should pray. If you're praying the Psalms, I can guarantee you that it will make a difference in your life because God says his word is living and active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It is the sword of the spirit. And if you are saying those words enough, even just to yourself in your room in the quiet, when you are out in the world, you will have those words on your lips because what you hear is what you start to say. Think about it. How many conversations have you had in the last year that have been about COVID? Why do you have those conversations about COVID? Because that's all we're hearing about. And rightly or wrongly, we're just... That's just the way we work. What we hear is what we talk about. So hear God's words, pray God's words, and God's words will start to come out of your mouth. So that's the disciples. Now let's look at the father. This father comes to Jesus 
And he explains how this demon is hurting this boy, that it's tried to kill him numerous times, that this has been happening since childhood. And you can imagine, I mean, if you've had a child who has suffered in any way, you know how painful and how frantic this man must have been. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, just take pity on us and help us. Which maybe sounds like a good thing to say, but Jesus doesn't like it. Right? In the text, he says, if you can? You're talking about me? If I can, everything is possible for one who believes. I think we need to compare that question, if you can, which Jesus doesn't like, to the question, if you are willing. Not only do some people in the Gospel of Mark say to Jesus, if you are willing and Jesus heals them, but Jesus himself, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is praying to God before he is crucified, says, if you are willing, This is the type of prayer that we ought to have, not an if-you-can prayer, but an if-you-are-willing prayer. An if-you-can prayer is a challenge to God. You can imagine like some teenage boys on their dirt bikes, like, but you can't jump over that thing, if you can. If we pray to God, if you can, we've essentially turned him into that divine vending machine that if maybe I prod him in the right way, he'll be like the genie from Aladdin and be tricked into giving me good things. But the prayer of a Christian is if you are willing. God, I'm willing to put my hand into the hole even if it means I'm going to get hurt because I know that you will give me good things. Not if you can, but if you are willing. Now Jesus says here, everything is possible for one who believes. And unfortunately, there are those who would call themselves Christians who have taken this passage and turned it into essentially health and wellness gospel. That if you just believe hard enough, you just pray hard enough, you just think about God enough, then you're going to get good things in your life. You're going to get money, you're going to get success, you're going to be healthy, all these things. Everything is possible for one who believes. You want to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company? Everything is possible for one who believes. You want to be an Olympic athlete? Anything is possible for those who believe. The problem is that's not what Jesus is talking about. He has literally just said less than a chapter ago that if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to believe, you're going to carry your cross. So it can't mean that. So what does he mean? There are two ways I think you can understand this, and both are fine. On the one hand, Jesus might just be talking about himself. Like he is perfect in faith, right? Where our faith is wavering and and comes and goes, Jesus' faith was always perfect in in his father. And so maybe what he's saying to this man is, If you can, I mean, I perfectly believe in the Father. Of course I can help you. Or maybe he is saying to that man, if you would believe perfectly, you wouldn't have come to me in this first situation. Everything is possible for one who believes. And maybe you would not have this boy have his demon driven out, but you would have been able to deal with this situation if you would just believe. And so the man then says to Jesus, well, I do believe but help me overcome my unbelief. And this is the centerpiece of the text. Like if you understand one piece of this text, understand this statement. Because what this man is admitting in that moment is that there is a dichotomy that exists in his heart, a a split, a, a breakdown, two natures, if you will, that exist in him. There is on the one hand, the part of him who believes God's words, who trusts that Jesus can save his son. And yet at the same time, there is the part of him that cries out, if you can, in unbelief. The old theologians called this simultaneously saint and sinner. 
at the same time completely justified in Jesus, completely perfect before God in heaven, and yet at the same time also a sinner plagued by a sinful nature and unbelief and rebellion against God. And that's what every single one of us is. We believe, and at the same time we unbelieve. I mean, think about it. You're here. You clicked onto this video. You believe. And yet, how often in your life do you act like you don't? That you trust in yourself. You try to fix it before praying. You see God's word as secondary to some other things that are going on in your life. You believe, but you unbelieve. In fact, this is, if I can be very specific, exactly why you should be in church every Sunday. I realize some reasons, you know, they get in the way and you can't, but, but every time you come to worship on Sunday, what you are doing is you are admitting, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe. I know that God's word is there and I want God's word because my unbelief is so strong that if I would turn my back for a second on my unbelief, it would eat me alive. I need to be vigilant. I need to be constantly disciplining myself to put on that armor of God to protect myself against not just Satan, but my own sinful nature. I need my unbelief overcome. I think very often we're not willing to admit that. We'll say, I believe and I'll be fine. But every one of us should have the humility to say, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe and left to my own devices, I would throw away God. Left without his influence of his word and sacraments, I would deny him. I heard a really good quote from a pastor this week that I think helps me maybe codify this idea in your mind. You should not expect to be saved on the last day, but you should plan on it. Say that again. You should not expect to be saved on the last day, but you should plan on it. Because whether or not you are saved on the last day by Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God's grace given to you, his faith in him given to you, the strengthening of that faith given to you. If you are saved on the last day, it is 100% God's doing and 0% your doing. But because Jesus said, I died and I rose and I am giving you that faith and I have elected you before the foundations of the earth, you should absolutely plan on it happening. But if you in the least bit expect to be saved, well, I go to church most of the time. I've been a Christian my whole life. I pray pretty well. I'm a relatively good person. I'll be saved. Then you're missing what this man is saying. Help my unbelief. So what's the takeaway for us with the Father? That we ought to see ourselves kind of like a marble in your hand. Maybe some of you played marbles when you were kids. Um, Marbles roll all the way around in your hand because your hand is not a totally flat surface, right? And so you kind of have to keep maneuvering your hand in order to keep the marble in your hand. We are kind of like that marble. We're constantly rolling to this thing and to that thing and to this thing and to that thing, pushed by every wave of teaching. And the last thing we saw on TV, the last thing we read on Twitter, the last thing somebody said to us, we believe this thing and that thing. We're rolling all the way around. The hand that we roll around in is God's hand. That as we unbelieve, and we try to roll away, God is constantly keeping us in his hand. And it's only his grace that does that. You notice that as soon as this man says, I do believe, help my unbelief, 
Jesus doesn't come back at him and say, well, I want you to get rid of your unbelief. He just heals his son. Because that's what Jesus does. When you're willing to admit you can't do it yourself, Jesus does it all for you. Okay, so this is the father. Now what about the boy? The boy is every one of us. If you think about it, even though he is a minor character and maybe almost forgotten, in many ways he is the centerpiece of this story based on the larger context of Mark's gospel. What has Jesus said? I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, and because of that, you are all going to be saved. Think about the narrative of this boy in this story. He starts as one who is possessed. It's obviously not his choice. It's been happening since childhood. And yet it has plagued him through his entire life to the point where it causes self-harm and tries to destroy him from the inside out. But then he is brought to Jesus by a sinner, his father, who obviously has some messed up things with his faith and yet still has enough sense to say, okay, I'm going to come to Jesus. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Then Jesus frees him. And he doesn't just free him a little bit. He frees him and says to the demon, never come back here again. He is freed forever. When Jesus does this, he lies on the ground as though he is dead. Until Jesus raises him up and he stands up. And literally those words there are the words that we have remembered about resurrection through all of Mark's gospel. A gyro, he raised him up just like he is not here, he is risen And when he stands up, the word is anastasis, like that girl's name, Anastasia, which means resurrection. He he was raised up and resurrected. And is this not the story of every single one of us? Possessed by sin, born into sin with a sinful nature that we could not overcome, that wanted to destroy us from the inside out until someone who probably had some messed up things in their faith brought us to the baptismal font as a child or brought us to church with them or spoke God's word to them, to to you, excuse me. And when that happened, even though it was your parents or your friend or your pastor or your family member who was a little bit messed up, Jesus freed you forever and said, you are mine and nothing can stop that. Nothing will take you out of my hand. And the promise then is that even though you die on this side of heaven, you are not really truly dead. You are only like a corpse who will live again when Jesus reaches his hand down into your grave, grabs you, raises you up at the resurrection on the last day. This is your story. This is what Jesus does for you. Not because you are good. In fact, you were possessed. But Jesus frees those who are plagued by sin. Then finally, we can see Jesus. Jesus starts the conversation with this very powerful statement, you unbelieving generation. And maybe that offends us a little bit. I think we like in Western Christianity to have sort of a happy-go-lucky Jesus. Everybody's okay. I'm just saving everybody here. No need to mind with me. Now, Jesus is ticked off here. And I think you can make a case that he's ticked off at just about everybody in the story. He's ticked off at his disciples because his disciples are trying to drive out this demon by themselves. He's ticked off at the father because the father's faith is messy. He's ticked off at the demon who's possessing this boy. He's just irritated. And I think that's important for us to remember. Our God gets irritated. Our God is gracious and generous and compassionate and patient. He is also not a pushover. He gets irritated. 
Maybe you get irritated at people in this world. Get irritated at your governmental officials. Get irritated at the people who live on your street. Get irritated at the people you work with, the people you go to school with, maybe the people who live in your house. If you're anything like me, when we get irritated, we push people away, don't we? I know when my, my daughter's two and one, and they're crying for no reason or asking me something for like the 11th time, I get irritated and very often I say, just please go in the other room or something like that. Maybe you've done the same thing with your kids or with a spouse, with a friend. But isn't it interesting what Jesus does? When he gets irritated, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long do I put up with you? What's the very next thing he says? Bring the boy to me. In other words, whenever we get irritated, we push away. But when Jesus gets irritated, he comes closer. He says, bring the boy to me. And that may sound like it's supposed to be an example for us that when we're irritated with our spouse or our kids or our friends or our coworkers or our government, that we should, we should draw nearer to them. And sure, that's a fine application, but if that's what you get out of this, you're missing the point. The point of this is that every single one of us in our unbelief irritates God, but God draws near. God does not push away. Jesus does not push you away. He keeps bringing you closer to him. Because he works very differently than anyone else on this earth or any other worldview or God that exists. He is greater than all of them because he is gracious. Because he gives freely. He forgives sins. And so I wanted to give you just a couple quotes uh, that I heard this week that I think sum up this idea of how Jesus works. That even though our sin is terrible, it is destructive, it is painful, that God's mercy is more than those sins. One author, Ray Ortland, said, who would, think, who would start a think tank with dropouts? Who would start a business with gamblers? Who would start a religion with sinners? Jesus would. Philip Yancey said, Jesus was the first world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. And the Apostle Paul said, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. You are here, I am here, because we believe and at the same time we unbelieve. And while that would push away anyone else, it brings us nearer to our God. And so continue to pray, continue to read the Psalms, and continue to come back here so that Jesus can continue to overcome your unbelief. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, every one of us in our sinful nature wants to deny you, wants to rebel against you, but the Holy Spirit has called us by the gospel, enlightened us with his gifts, sanctified us, kept us in this true faith. So we pray that you continue to do that. That you put the Psalms on our lips. That you put the Proverbs in our minds. That your words become our words. So that when the trials come, we are prepared for them. We've disciplined ourselves to say less me, more you. And even when we are about ourselves, when our unbelief is overcoming us, overcome our unbelief. Save us, Lord Jesus. We cannot expect to be saved, but because of what you said, we are planning on it. Come quickly. Amen.